Good morning. Okay, thank you for such a good prayer, just leading prayer for us. Where are you? There you are. I always feel encouraged when I hear my family prayed for, and I, I really enjoy hearing names I don't know, because it gives me this sense that we're not just praying for our little tight group here. We're, we're thinking of the community. I know most of you probably know these names because, you know, with more families in town than I do. But I don't, and I go, I wonder who that is. But I'm glad we're praying for them. So thank you. Let's turn to the Word. The Book of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians. Starting at verse 12, and I'll just read through to verse 18 today. So, Philippians 1, 12 to 18. Now I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. As a result, it has become clear throughout the whole palace guard and to everyone else that I am in chains for Christ. Because of my chains, most of the brothers in the Lord have been encouraged to speak the word of the Lord more courageously and fearlessly. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. The latter do so in love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. The former preach Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Father God, teach us from your word this morning, we pray. Amen. Medical missionary Bruce Olson was captured by Colombian communists in October of 1988. He was beaten and kept bound most of the time. The soldiers were waiting for a ransom, but the mission wouldn't pay. Olson endured pain by concentrating on the spirit and doing God's will in his current situation. He was tortured, but able to influence the guerrillas by teaching and healing them. After a while, they even let him conduct worship services. They couldn't understand how he could pay back evil with good. Olson was able to lead some of them to the Lord. When he was very ill, a bird sang outside, reminding him of how the Motoloni Indians sang the scriptures. When the soldiers could not break him, they apologized and released him. Today we're going to look at another Christian who was imprisoned for his faith and how God uses him to do amazing things despite his chains. Hopefully, we'll see how God can use us to do great things for Him, no matter where we find ourselves, when we learn to concentrate on what truly matters, and when we pick the right fight. Just by way of review, by this point in the letter, Paul has greeted his readers and shared an initial blessing with them all the while praising God for taking care of him while he's in prison. He's in prison in Rome. 
In doing so, he shares from the depths of his heart how thankful he is to know the people who are the church in the city of Philippi. His words of gratitude are sincere, and his prayer that we found last week in verses 9 to 11 for an all-growing, ever-growing and deepening love is a model for us to follow as we pray the very best for those who God brings into our lives. Having shared these introductory thoughts, he now begins to explain more fully his current situation. If his first words of greeting taught us how to pray for each other, his next words make me think of what's really important to me. His tone is reassuring. He's not complaining about his lack of freedom, his, his living conditions, the quality of the food, or anything else that you'd expect to preoccupy a prisoner. He's preoccupied with something, but it's not his own suffering. It's the fact that the gospel message is thriving despite his imprisonment. He's letting us know that the good news, non-fiction story of Jesus Christ hasn't suffered one bit because Paul is locked up. In fact, it's thriving all the more. His imprisonment has brought him a whole new audience, the guards of the emperor himself. The palace guards mentioned in verse 13 are those personal troops of the emperor himself also known as the Praetorian Guard. These are men who would have proven him themselves loyal and competent. The emperor would surround himself with such men to protect his own interests in the empire. One of their tasks was to guard the prisoners who had appealed to the emperor for a trial, as Paul has done. They would take turns in the guard duty, and they never worked alone. They worked at least in pairs and sometimes more. So it wouldn't take long for Paul to interact with a good portion of the emperor's men. In addition to guarding the prisoners, they would also report back any information they learned from these prisoners back to the emperor. Nero had been emperor in Rome for years now. And he was just beginning to crack down on the Christians within the Roman Empire. He hadn't resorted to wholesale slaughter as we know he will in later years. But he would certainly be interested in making good use out of Paul as a known leader of these Christians. So, under house arrest and guarded by the emperor's troops who would record every word he said... How does Paul react to all this attention? He takes the opportunity to make his guards a captive audience, if you'll pardon the pun, to the good news of Jesus Christ. It reminds me of Bugs Bunny when he's up against Yosemite Sam. I looked for a clip to do this, but I just couldn't find it. But you know how Bugs was always trying to get into Sam's boat or castle or fort, or whatever Sam may have. Invariably, there's a scene where Sam has bugs backed up against the wall. Six shooters shoved right up into his nose, so tight that it's bending upwards towards his eyes. And then Bugs says something like, 
Now I've got you right where I want you. And he knocks the guns aside and puts a big sloppy kiss right on Yosemite's mouth. Well, Paul, a scholar and tent maker by trade, wouldn't have looked like much against one of the emperor's bodyguards. He would have been the scrawny rabbit with the guns up his nose. And he would be thinking, now I've got you right where I want you. Because inside these big pagan thugs, Paul saw hearts that needed Jesus. And Paul shares the story he's living to tell. And not just once, but so much so that the whole palace guard knows about the Jewish carpenter who died decades previously. Now we're not told how they react to the gospel. But the fact that Paul is still able to write about it to those outside at least shows that they're allowing him to continue talking. It's likely they've responded as people have for 2,000 years. Some scoff. Some plug their ears while others politely listen. And some actually turn their lives over to the King of Kings. The New Testament makes a point of showing several Roman soldiers who come to faith. And others besides the guard were getting an earful as well. The everyone else in verse 13 would most likely mean the officials who would check in on the prisoner. The cleaners, the clerks, the lawyers, everybody involved with his case. Paul took them all on that gospel circuit. Everybody was important enough to hear the good news. That's Paul's first reassurance to his friends in Philippi, that the gospel is still getting out. His imprisonment is actually exposing him to a lot of people who normally he'd never get a crack at. And the message is not going unheard. His second reassurance is that not only he, but other Christians as well, are getting the word out. When I read verse 14, I think of someone standing in a crowded auditorium to begin a standing ovation. At first, everybody just kind of looks at that person standing up and clapping and continues on with their, you know, polite applause. If that lone standee gives up and sits back down, the din kind of subsides and the show's over. However, if he or she persists, usually someone else stands up as well. And this second person inspires a few more people to rise, and then in a matter of seconds, the crowd is on their feet, hands smacking together and hearts in their throats as they cheer on the performer. The attitude is electric, and everybody knows they're part of something special. Paul, by standing up for the gospel, inspired those Christians in Rome to be all the more fervent with their faith. Paul's courage was a rallying cry. It turned the polite listeners into zealous preachers. It woke up the sleepy convert and moved them to a place where they put their faith where their mouth was. I think that every one of us has a spot that wants to do the right thing. Seeing someone brave in the face of danger inspires us. And when I see someone willing to sacrifice for a cause, I take that cause much more seriously. So Paul's got no problem with prison life. 
He's using it as an opportunity for the gospel message to penetrate into the heart of the empire. Not only has he been exposed to many new fresh opportunities, but he's inspired others to take up the cause of the gospel. And to Paul, that is a good thing. But in all this good, there is a catch. Verse 15. It is true that some preach Christ out of envy and rivalry, but others out of goodwill. There's something just deliciously modern about this verse. Allow me to explain. Some people like to think that the church of today is just a hollow shell of what we used to be. They portray modern churches as eyeballing each other suspiciously from their sacred walls, barely tolerating each other while they all strive to entice the other's membership to come to their own fortress. These people talk about returning church to how it was in the New Testament, as if that would solve all these problems. If only we didn't have denominations. If only we all met together. If only there was one church, just one, etc., etc. There's a problem with this kind of thinking. It's based on a false pretense. Anybody who wants the church to be like it was 2,000 years ago doesn't have to go back in time one day. The early church had just as many problems as we do today. Most of Paul's writings in the New Testament are to fix problems in these churches. Paul's in prison sharing his faith Paul's in prison for sharing his faith. So some other preachers start to horn in on his action. They envy his prominent position in the church and are using this chance to try and call a few of his sheep. They're competing for listeners just as zealously as our late night crusaders do today. Listen to verse 17. The former preached Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing that they can stir up trouble for me while I am in chains. This isn't Jimmy Baker and Jimmy Swagger. This is the Apostle Paul. And they're trying to mess with him. They're deliberately trying to make life hard for Paul. It's bad enough when his captors put the screws on him. But this is how some other Christians were treating him. What are we to make of this? First, let's confirm exactly who these people are. These verses lead right out of verse 14. So the natural read of the passage is that his subjects are one and the same. The same people in verse 14 are the preachers talked about in verse 15 and onwards. Now, some are legitimately trying to serve God. They preach out of goodwill, good intentions. They're preaching where Paul can't, out of respect for Paul. And, of course, the gospel itself. Paul sees this and recognizes it. But some are using Paul's imprisonment to attract attention to themselves. Envious of the attention Paul has received for serving the Lord... They figured they too could make a name for themselves by getting the word out while Paul's locked up. 
Now we want to judge these people. I know we're not supposed to judge these people, but admit it, you want to judge these people. I do. For being petty and self-centered. But Paul himself doesn't let us do this right away. What makes these people different is that Paul himself says they preach Christ. Their motivations are obviously suspect, but the message must be clearly on the up and up. And because of that, Paul takes it easy on them. Compare these words to chapter 3 that we'll get to in a few weeks. When Paul's describing those who mess around with the actual message. Chapter 3, verse 2. Watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. He's totally intolerant with those who mess with the gospel. These phrases are foul. They were directed to those who would try to embellish the gospel with their own ideas, ideas that corrupt the gospel message. So if he gets so mad about the message being corrupted, why does he treat these rival preachers in chapter 1 so gently? Aren't they guilty of defaming the gospel with their silly antics? Aren't they giving the church a bad name? Can't he see what these people are doing to the church? Why aren't they being called dogs or, or vultures or, or, or whatever? Because the true message is getting out. That's why. The first time I read this, I didn't like that answer that much. Because it doesn't fit my concept of justice. But to Paul, he sees the big picture. Listen to his exact words in verse 18. But what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. What does it matter? The word is getting out. But it's not right. It's not fair. It's not the way it's supposed to be. It's not... What does Paul say? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. Sometimes we feel called to fight for what is right. In this case, the power of the gospel is so great it fights for itself. It wins the hearts of people. When it's shared in its pure form, it cannot help but grow and spread, and win, and thrive. Paul knew the power of this 